Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to bless our time in study this morning. Father, we just thank you so much for the opportunity to gather here and to open up your word, to spend time uh, in your presence, Lord, to worship you through the study of your word. Lord, we, we believe that your word uh, is from you directly. It's, it's valid for today. It's inerrant. It contains all the things that we need to live our life. So, Lord, I just ask that as we study this morning together, would you just, through the Holy Spirit, minister to us wherever we're at? Help us to stay focused. Help us not to get distracted or worried or concerned about the things of tomorrow or what happened last week. But Lord, may we just rest in your presence as we study your scriptures together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the last time we were together, I wasn't here last week, it was the week before, uh, we began to look at chapter 13 of Hebrews. And before we kind of jump back in there, I needed to remind you of a couple things. Uh, Number one, if you're joining us for the first time, you need to know that the audience, the recipients of this letter, they were Hebrews. They were Jewish people uh, who who had come to faith in Jesus Christ. They were likely living in a predominantly Jewish community, and they were sort of the minorities within their community. So if you can imagine, their whole life they've been raised Jewish, they're practicing Judaism, and all of a sudden they come to faith in Jesus Christ. They're a little bit different than everybody else around them, and that's okay, but they're struggling with some of those issues and as a result of of that struggle they've kind of they're kind of stuck in between they're kind of going well am I Jewish or am I Christian and and they began to sort of mesh Judaism and Christianity together and the author here wants them to know hey no no you don't have to do that because the overarching theme of the book of Hebrews is the supremacy of Jesus Christ you don't have to mesh Judaism into Christianity. They're not meant to be joined together. They're meant to stand alone. While Christianity, you know, Jesus was Jewish and certainly it comes out of, Christianity comes out of Judaism. It's not meant to be incorporated together. Christ is, if you would make it simply put, Christ is better than the prophets. He's better than the law. He's, the, he's a better high priest. He resides at the right hand of the Father. He made a better sacrifice, which is why Christianity is is better it's more supreme than Judaism and that's what he wants us to know so that's the kind of the theme of this underlying book and we've we've gone we've talked about faith and so many things as we've studied through Hebrews and then as we kind of came to the last chapter uh, the last time I was here in chapter 13 well at the end of chapter 12 he reminded us of something the author did and and if you're not familiar you'll hear me keep saying the author personally I believe it was the apostle Paul but there's an argument to it could be a couple of different guys so if I slip up and say the apostle Paul just know that's my personal opinion but I truly mean the author of Hebrews and the author began to put these sort of bullet points together chapter 13 but at the end of chapter 12 he reminded us that we as believers in Jesus Christ are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken. Now just let that sink in just for a moment. As a believer in Jesus Christ, there is a kingdom coming that cannot be shaken. Now I know that we live in the United States of America and we think, well, our kingdom cannot be shaken. Well, guess what? It can be shaken. No kingdom on earth has ever lasted forever. Now I don't know what the future holds. Well, I do know what the Bible tells me, but I don't know what the future of our kingdom, which we're residing in, But what I know is my hope as a Christian is in a kingdom that's coming that cannot be shaken. It will not be shaken. And as a result of that, the author begins to say, hey, as I kind of go to close out this letter, I'm going to tell you the way that you should be living your Christian life. I'm going to give you some very practical points, some applications on what your Christian life should should look like. In verse 1, we're encouraged to continue in brotherly love. In verse 2, we're told basically that hospitality matters. In fact, he says, be careful. Make sure you entertain strangers because you might be entertaining an angel. 
Then in verse 3, we're encouraged to remember the prisoners as though we're chained with them. These are the believers that have found themselves imprisoned for their gospel, for their faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, it's kind of the persecuted church, the modern day thing. It, it's, although we still have a, a mission to go out to the church, the, the, the author here is referring to the persecuted church, those believers who've been imprisoned for faith. Then in verse 4, he told us that marriage is honorable, the marriage bed is undefiled, but he wanted us to know also that God will judge fornicators and adulterers. This is not something that God takes lightly. It's something that he takes seriously. And we covered this last week. I'm just kind of doing a review. Then as we came to verses 5 and 6, he's had a few more important things to say. He said, do not covet and be content with the things that we have. I could teach a whole message on that, but I'm not going to. I'm just simply going to tell you, don't covet, be content with the things that you have. And then there at the very end of verse 6, he says something that you need to know. God will never leave us or forsake us. You need to know that God will never leave you or forsake you. That God is with you right now, today, where you're at. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, he is with you. He's not going to leave you. He's not going to forsake you. That allows you to publicly declare the Lord is my helper. Not he was my helper. Not someday he will be my helper. Right now, he is your helper if he is with you, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. He will never leave us, forsake us. The Lord is with me. He is my helper. The verse says, I will not fear for what can man do to me. What can this life possibly throw at me that God can't overcome? The worst thing that could possibly happen is in this life is what? Your life is taken away from you. Well, that's a beautiful thing if you're a follower of Jesus Christ because you're now in the presence of the Lord. And he goes on there. As we pick up in verse 7, the author is going to continue to instruct the readers, but he's also going to instruct us. Look at verse 7. Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried away with various and strange doctrines. For it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. Here the author is encouraging the readers to remember those people in their lives who have taught them the word of God. Those who rule over them, those who are leading in their local church, in their local ministry. He's saying remember them. To consider all the good that has come from their life into your life. And to follow their example of faith. He's saying remember that. And the phrase that remember them. It's kind of interesting. Certainly remember the ones that are alive, but he's also possibly relating to those that have passed away. Some may be gone. Remember those. Don't let them, don't just forget these leaders. Don't just let them go off into the distance. Perhaps they were martyred for their faith. He's saying, hey, keep in mind what they've done, what God has accomplished in your life through them. They should not be forgotten. It's easy for us to forget the courageous Christians of the past. They can slip off into our mind. We don't think much of them. But we need to remember their labors and their sacrifices make it possible for us to minister today. We don't want to just forget those courageous, faithful saints who serve faithfully in difficult times. It's oftentimes we look back to them in our difficult time to see the example that we need to live by. Don't just forget them. And then there's something else interesting there. That phrase, them that rule over you. And I know we don't like that phrase. Nobody rules over me. Well, if you're a Christian, there is people ruling over you. I hate to tell you. 
It refers to the spiritual leaders of the local churches. This is the first time it occurs in our passage this morning, but I will just give you a hint. It's going to occur two more, on two more times, two more occasions. These leaders, these religious leaders, your pastors, your elders, the people on the board, those that are ruling over you spiritually, there are certain men that have a responsibility for you. In my own personal life, there's certain men, one of them being Pastor Chuck Smith, who have taught me God's word, who have demonstrated what faithful ministry looks like, what a life of faith looks like. I have witnessed that the fruit in my, I've witnessed the fruit in my life that comes from sitting under his teaching for a number of years. Only met the man on one occasion, but I've listened to dozens, hundreds of his teachings. It's impacted me. I have, to, I have the obligation here to remember them. Now, I must caution you, it doesn't mean we worship them. We, you can remember somebody, you can take a look at their faithful example, but it doesn't mean that you now worship them. You don't raise them higher than anybody else. They've just given you example. We don't worship them and we don't give them glory, but it's certainly fitting and honor as we remember someone's faithful work. Now, as we come to verse 8, I, I just want to encourage you to underline it. You may say, well, I don't write in my Bible. This is a good one to underline, and it's a good one to memorize. It says this, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Why do I need to memorize that? Because you need to know that he doesn't change, that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And certainly we could, this is one of those areas where I could just go off and I could probably teach an entire message on just this one verse. But and we certainly speaking here of his deity, of, of the unchanging nature of Jesus Christ, it's clearly saying these things since God doesn't change, now Christ doesn't change. It's certainly speaking of those things, but it kind of almost seems a little bit out of place here. It's almost like, wait a minute, he, he was just talking about remembering and all of a sudden he says Jesus Christ doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's not out of place, though, because what it's doing is it's preparing you for the next verse. It's stated here in context as you should already know this, but this is going to validate what I'm about to tell you in verse 9. Since Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, he can boldly, the author can boldly write, verse 9, do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines. Don't do it. For it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. If you've been around Christianity for a little while, you have noticed that various and strange doctrines are easy to come by in the church. Everybody has something they're selling. Everybody has something they want you to follow. Everybody has something they're peddling to you. They have some new way, some new idea, something that you need to be a better Christian. You need to go out and buy this thing. Trust me, you don't need it. Everything that you need to fulfill God's calling is right here in the scriptures, and it's free. Well, if you don't have a Bible, you can take one of ours. You're welcome to it. We want to put one in your hands. But there's always an opportunity, there's always these strange things. And here, to keep things in context, they're referring to probably the Mosaic Law, the Covenant. You know, these, these people, as I told you, they're living within, they're Christians who have come to faith in Christ. They're living within a Jewish community. They're bouncing back and forth between Judaism and Christianity. And he wants them to know, listen, you guys don't have to believe all these strange doctrines. You don't, you don't have to do that. And he's really referring to the law today, the, the law there. When he talks about the foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them, He's referring to the dietary laws of Judaism. It hasn't profited them. It's not going to profit you. You don't need to worry about keeping them is essentially what he's saying. But even churches today can get wound up 
with various and strange doctrines. You see, in our culture, we can look at that and go, well, I'm not really worried about what I eat. I eat whatever I want. I know. We can see it on all of us, can't we? But in their culture, what you ate, if you ate certain things, you were unclean. So what you ate really mattered. But even today in churches, various and strange, doc strange doctrines can creep in. You say, Rob, well, how do I know what the truth is? By the word of God. By, by God's word. You have to listen to what's being said to you, evaluate it in the context of God's word. No, I just think the pastor's going to tell me what's true. Don't believe a word I say. Honestly, don't, believe, don't, don't just say, well, I think it, it... Follow it in God's word. If what I say makes sense and lines up with God's word, then believe it, live it, and let it change your life. But don't just take my word for it, because my words won't change your life. But God's word will not return void. It will accomplish its purpose in you. But that's why we want you to follow along. You see, when I teach God's word, I hope to do it in a way where you can understand it. I hope to do it in a way where you can take God's word, apply it to your life, and that it will change you forever. I don't want my words to change you. I want you to hang on his words. I want you to see what he has to say. And when someone comes along with some strange doctrine, you will simply go, that doesn't sound right. That doesn't, you might not even know where to find it, but you then begin to search God's word and go, no, that, that, that's not right. You've, you've twisted scripture. You've twisted something in a way. That's a strange doctrine. I'm not going after it. You see, there's, there's this comfort. There's this place of standing in the truth that can only be found in God's word. You see, it's oftentimes many people want to say, hey, come check out this new thing. Hey, I wrote this new book about the Bible. Hey, I got this new insight. I got this new wisdom. Listen, let me just be clear. Nothing in the Bible is new. It might be new to you. You might learn it for the first time. But the scriptures are the scriptures. This is God's word. It was true before the world was created. It will go on into eternity after the world is destroyed. It's still true. You're not good. You might get something new out of it. I never saw that before. It's new to me, but it's not a new truth. It's not a new revelation. It's not something that I needed, that you need me to tell you what it says. You might learn something there. I learned it for the first time. If you're like me, you got to learn it for the second time and the third time and the fourth time. And then you finally get it after about the 16th time. But it's not new. It's not, it's not just been created. It's always been there. You just haven't known it. Don't misunderstand me. I want to be clear. As you study the word, you will discover new truths to you. And that's one of the blessings of studying the word. But they're just new to you. They have always been in existence because it's the word of God. Then in verse 9, the author also said, It is good or it was good that your heart be established by grace. Your heart be established by grace and not with the, he wanted to talk about the foods which do not profit anything. Let me ask you a question. Where is your heart established this morning? Let me make it a little clear. In your relationship with Christ, is your heart established in grace, his grace towards you, or is your heart established in legalism, the way that you live your life for him? You say, well, I don't understand the difference. Let me just, let me make it clear. When it comes to your relationship with Jesus Christ, is it based solely on him and his grace towards you? Or is it based on, I'm a good person. I do all the things that a good Christian does. I, I go to, I'm here in church. This is my once a month visit or my twice a week visit or whatever. I've, I've, I've done my checklist, so to speak. There's a difference. There's a big difference. Where is your heart established? And let me see if I can help you even answer the question a little more. When you sin, when you fall short, when you find yourself, I've blown it. I, I, I know that I've sinned. I've made a mistake. When you, when, you, when, you, when you get to that place, Lord, forgive me. 
Are you blown away by his grace? Can you, do, do, does it, does it, is it unbelievable that, that, that God, a holy and righteous God, would love a sinner like me or like you? Does his grace just go, wow, that's incredible, Lord, that he went to the cross for me? Does it ultimately draw you closer to him because he pours out his grace on you? Or when you sin, do you find yourself mad at yourself because you did it again? Or do you find yourself uh, mad because you didn't live up to the expectation. You made a promise, God, I'll never do that again. Anybody ever done that? God, if you get me out of this one, I'll never do that. And what happens? How long does it take to go back to it again sometimes? You see, if my relationship with God is established on the grace he extends to me, when I do fall short, it only draws me closer to him. But if my relationship with God is, ex- is based on the way I live my life when I fall short, it usually draws me away in isolation. It draws me away in frustration. You see, the difference is when I sin, if my relationship is based on grace, that conviction of the Holy Spirit comes in, and I realize I've offended God with that sin, and I begin to repent, and I begin to draw back with him, then his grace poured out upon me produces worship in me, because I'm not worthy. But then too often, sometimes it's just the opposite. When we find ourselves falling short, we get mad at ourselves. And please don't misunderstand conviction. Conviction is the part of every believer's life. What do you do with it? We have the opportunity, we have the responsibility as Christians to respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, to turn away from the sin that we've committed and to turn back to the Lord and have his grace pour out upon us. I'm not saying there should be no conviction, there will be, but does that conviction draw you into awe and thanksgiving and worship or does it draw you away into isolation and to frustration? because you didn't live up to your expectations once again. Do you understand the difference? There's, there's a big difference there. Let me ask it again, is your heart established? And that word for established, it means standing, steadfast, firm, relying on. Is your heart established in grace or is it established in the law, the rules? You see, in this culture to which this is written, their hearts, when they would bounce back and forth between Christianity and Judaism, their heart was established, trying to establish in both places. I want to keep the law, but I want the grace, and it's not possible. You have to pick the place where you're going to establish your hearts. He says these rules haven't profited them. These laws haven't profited them. Paul would tell us the law, the Jewish law was a schoolmaster. It's to bring us to a place where we know that I need a savior. I can't live up to this expectation. I constantly fall short. And then who's going to save me? Thanks be to Jesus Christ, my Lord. As a follower of Christ, I might might not be telling you something new, but you will sin. Do you know that? You're going to have sin. You're going to make mistakes. But when you do and when I do, God's grace should be made real. It should cause us to realize the cost of our sin Realize the separation it causes between me and God. And it should cause uh, this, this pouring out of praise and thanksgiving that doesn't come from anywhere else. You see, I've learned in my, I don't know how long I've been walking with the Lord, but it's been a long time. I'm not good at keeping track of the past. I'm usually working forward. But here's what I've learned. The, the longer I walk with the Lord, the closer I get to him, the more undone I realize I am. The more I realize I, I fall short all the time. The more I realize I need a savior. I thought when I first got saved, if I just clean up a few things in my life, I'd be good to go. I'd be a perfect Christian. Boy, was I wrong. Because once the outside gets cleaned up, he starts working on the inside. And once the inside's the mind and all those things, it's like, wow, Lord, I'm sorry I thought that. Yeah, but you didn't say it. Yeah, but I thought it. It still offended the Lord. It's still sin. You see, that's the, that's the difference. And as we come to verse 10, 
the author will once again kind of turn back to, the, to an Old Testament typology. Verse 10 says this, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle, that's the priests in the tabernacle or the temple, have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gates. It is likely that these Christian believers were being questioned and even being influenced by their Jewish brothers and sisters and family members. Perhaps they even said something to the effect of, where's your altar? Where's your altar? As a Jewish person, I have an altar. There's a temple, and we go to the altar, and we burn the animals, and we sacrifice, and our sins are forgiven. Where is your altar? And let me just say, I suspect that verse 10 is written with some passion. We have an altar. I, I don't think it was just written passively. I think it was written with some, a, a passionate voice. Maybe even a little bit, uh, I don't want to say sarcastic, but, but intense, intensity. We have an altar, and those who serve at their altar... Those who serve at the altar in the tabernacle or the temple, they have no right to come and eat from our altar. You say, wait a minute, Rabbi, I thought the altar was the thing in church. I thought it was the place up front where people went and, and there, you know, I've been to churches where they have an altar. No, that's not the altar of Christianity. That might be the altar of a building. What's the altar of Christianity? Where, where's, what, what does he mean by that? It's the place where the sacrifice was made. The altar of Christianity is the place where the sacrifice was made. It is where Jesus gave his life for our sins. It's the cross. You see, the altar of Christianity, is, it's where your life will be altered. Think about that. If I want my life altered, I've got to go to the cross where I will be born again and become a new creation in Christ. That's the altar of Christianity. It's my life is changed at the cross. Has your life been changed at the cross? Is, is it, is that, that's where salvation is imparted to you because of your faith in Jesus Christ. That he, you believe he died on the cross for your sins. You embrace that and you're going to spend the rest of your life following him. You want your life altered? It's at the cross, not at the stage. Not at the building. It's altered in Jesus Christ. That's what he's talking about. In the Old Testament, this is kind of interesting. In the Old Testament, kind of bring this, tie this together here. In Leviticus chapter 16, it tells us that on the Day of Atonement, there would be certain animals that were sacrificed, and the blood of those animals was, was, was taken into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, and, and cast on the mercy seat. But the body of those animals was not burned in the temple or the tabernacle. It was taken outside of the camp to be burned. And the Day of Atonement was when they would atone for the sins of the nation Israel. The high priest would do it once a year, an atoning for the sins of Israel. And we perform these sacrifices to atone for their sins. So we have the Day of Atonement, the sins being atoned for, the bodies being burned outside of the camp. In Leviticus chapter 14, there's another occurrence where the sacrifices are made outside of the tabernacle, outside of the camp, if you will. It was for the healing of leprosy. If you were a leper and you were healed, you would, the priest would meet you outside the camp, he would evaluate you, and you would make a sacrifice outside of the camp. Leprosy in the scriptures is a picture of what? Sin. So you're following here. Day of atonement outside the camp, sin outside the camp. One other, place, one other thing was done outside the camp. When Aaron and his sons, it's Exodus chapter 29, were consecrated as priests, they were consecrated, they sacrificed outside of the camp. Are you following what this is saying here? When it says, 
For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people. Who's the people? Us, those that believe in him. He might sanctify the people. How did he do it? With his own blood, suffered outside the gates or outside the camp. So let me just kind of paraphrase it for you. Our high priest, because we've already established in Hebrews that Jesus is, the, is our high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. Our high priest left the temple. He left the city. He left all the traditions and the regulations, all the priestly robes, all the fragrant incense, all the rituals, all the routines that the people are enamored with. He left the building and he was taken outside the gate, outside the camp to a hill called Golgotha or Calvary where he was crucified, where his blood, that became the altar of Christianity. We don't worship the cross. We worship what, who, was, who died on the cross. But it became the place where our lives are changed. Because he did this, we can follow in verse 13. It says, because of what Christ did, therefore, let us go forth to him. Let us go forth to Christ outside the camp. Bearing his reproach, for we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name, but do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. So if the camp that we're talking about here refers to Judaism, and Christ died outside the camp. If we want a part of Christ, we have to go outside the camp. That's what he's saying here. Which Judaism rejected Christ. Judaism rejects Christianity. The Jewish people had been raised to consider that everything outside the camp is unclean. That's what they were taught. So what the author's saying is you can't mesh the two. If you want Christ, you've got to go outside the camp. And you're also going to have to bear his reproach. Bear his reproach. Yeah, it means it's going to be difficult. There's going to be, people aren't going to agree with you. Just consider something. If you were in that day and you said, I'm a follower of Jesus. Oh yeah, what did Jesus do? Well, he was crucified by the Romans on a cross. I thought that was for thieves. I thought that was for the worst of society. It was. And why are you following a guy who's got no power? He's got nothing, but, but he, was, he died at the hands of the Romans. No, you don't understand. You don't understand he died for my sins. There's, you're, you're missing the big picture. There's something greater there. To the world, it looked like he had nothing. But it was a, that crown that was placed on his head was a victor's crown. That crown of thorns, it was, a, it was a crown of victory. They mocked him. But he said, I'm going to overcome these things. I'm going to overcome sin and death so that my people can be drawn close to me. When they followed Christ, they were forced to bear the reproach of Christ. It carried a cost. It cost them something, but they were able to do this, the scripture says, because their hope was not tied to a city or to a tabernacle or to a temple or to a religious institution. They're looking for a city to come in the future, it says, a city whose builder and maker is God. You see, they knew, they understood there's something coming greater than what I'm facing right now. There's a future, there's a hope that's coming that I get to be part of a city that will not be shaken, of an eternal kingdom that will not be shaken. For us today, 
Most of us aren't called to follow Christ out of a religion, although in some sense we are. We're called to follow Christ out of the world in our culture. You see, there's a world out there that says you need to live your life a certain way. And when you say, no, I'm not going to do it that way, I'm going to do it the biblical way, you will be labeled, you will be critiqued, and there may be consequences for you standing firm and standing strong on God's word. Always stand on the word. This world wants to pull us away. We as Christians have to be in the world. They had to be around Judaism, but we're not to be of the world. We're not to be accepting and taking everything that they have. Why do we not do that? Because we understand it's futile. As, Christian, as a Christian, I know my hope is not in the world. My hope is not pinned to the geographical location I live here in the United States of America. Because not, everybody, not every Christian has that hope. Not every Christian has a declaration of independence or a bill of rights. And you only have it as long as the country seems to give it to you. It can be taken away with a few votes any given time. But as a Christian, our hope is not in that. Yes, we enjoy the blessings of the great country that we live in. But we understand there is another day coming where there's a future that is going to be eternal. There's a kingdom coming that will not be shaken. It will not be moved. As a believer in Jesus Christ, I'm part of that. And so are you. And since this is the case, the author says we should, what does he say there? Continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. Because this is not it. Because this world is not all that we have. Because there's something greater that should create in you a sacrifice of praise. What does it look like? He tells you right there in verse 15. He gives you three things. The fruit of our lips giving thanks to his, that's Jesus' name. The fruit of your lips should be giving thanks to Jesus' name. What does the fruit of your lips say? What, what, what comes out of your mouth? What, where, where are you? Where are you, what, you know, okay, it's in church. Everybody behaves in church for the most part. But when you get out of here, what does the fruit of your lips testify about yourself? What does it say about you? you know, and, 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 and part of the fruit of our lips is song. In, in singing and in, in, you know worshiping with our mouth we're you know let me ask you a question why do you guys come here and worship on on sunday morning and on thursday nights why do you sing some of you like to sing and then you sing everywhere and everything the time the time they play a song i just like to sing that's great but there's others of us like me i don't like to sing you know why i don't like to sing because i can't sing i don't sound very good when i sing i don't understand the whole voice thing i don't hear the tune i, I, I sound terrible but yet i'll come here on sundays and on thursdays and i'll sing why why would I do that? Because I know that it brings glory to God when his people gather together and going to sing praises to his name. So for someone like me who doesn't like to sing, can you imagine the blessing that brings to the Lord? I, if you, I won't sing the national anthem very, very quietly if I do, because you don't want to hear me sing. I'll stand at a ball game and say it, but I'm not going to belt it out like some of you guys do. But yet think about the Lord. He says, get together. That's why we get together. We sing because it's bringing glory and it's worship to his name. And I've also come to learn that when we sing together corporately, doesn't it remind you who God is? Doesn't it, if we pick the right worship songs, and I'm talking about songs that are about him and what he's done. Because there's a, there's a modern movement in worship that wants to make worship all about you and how you feel and what you think. And they, they call it kind of vertical worship, I guess. And it's all about you. No, that's not worship. There's nothing wrong with those Christian songs. Nothing wrong with them all. They, they minister to our lives in a certain way. But that's a difference when someone, when I am worshiping and singing on what God has accomplished, on who God is. You see, I can sing that song no matter where I am in the world. 
I can sing that song whether I'm hungry or whether I'm fed. I can sing that song whether I'm poor or whether I'm wealthy. I can sing that song whether I'm sick or whether I'm well. Any Christian anywhere can sing the songs about God. But, as I said, sometimes we get wrapped up in the songs that kind of make us feel good. We want to have the positive and encouraging feeling in our life. No knock on K-Love. That's it's a good radio station. Don't listen to ours. Don't listen. No, I'm just kidding. There's nothing wrong with that. There's a, there's a need for that in someone's life. But there's also a need to understand the difference between what worship really sounds like and the words that we're singing really bringing glory to him. There's, we all need to be positive and encouraging. That's true. But we need that opportunity to stand before him and go, Lord, this is who you are in light of who I am, in light of my circumstance, in light of my situation. That's the fruit of our lips. When you're at work, what does the fruit of your lips say? Are you a complainer? Are you always complaining? Is everything, is the glass always half empty? It's falling apart. The whole world's falling apart. That's it. It's all over. It's, it, this, is, 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 what, what does it say? Or can you say, you know, the Lord's in control. What does the fruit of your lips say? Think about it this way. If we could record everything you said this week and then play it back in front of church. <gasps> no, I wouldn't want that. What if we could do it with everything you thought? No, that's terrible. The fruit of our lips should be giving thanks to Jesus' name. Number two, he said, you need to do good. Praise and worship are important, but as Christians, we're also told to do good to one another. How do you treat your fellow believers? How do you treat your fellow mankind? Is there a heart that says, I want to do good? I want to help them. Or is there a heart that it just, I watched something uh, the other night on the news where somebody got, got hurt and they laid on the ground for like 20 minutes before someone ever, anybody else went to help them. Just lay there. If you see somebody hurting, can you come alongside? Is there a desire? No, that's their problem. I'm not getting wrapped up in that. I don't, I, I, no, nobody's got time for that. I got, a, I, got, I got an appointment. I got to get going. Or, or is your heart go, wow, that person's really hurting. That really need, they, need, they need to talk. Maybe I can pray with them. See, this is what he's telling us. Do good. And the last thing he said is share. Share the things. No, I don't like share. It's my stuff. Can I borrow your hammer? No. Can I borrow your car, your truck? I'm moving. Can I borrow your truck? Ask me if you can borrow my truck someday. What will I say? Yes, help yourself. Ask the guys that have borrowed it. I don't care. It's just a, it's just a truck. If you need it to move, now you can't have it, but you can borrow it. If, if, can you borrow, you know, and how much stuff do you borrow and it comes back broken? You go, I'm never lending that out again. No, share. It's okay. Share, with, share the stuff that you have. Share your knowledge. Share your insights. Share your wisdom. It's not just finances. It's share all the things that, that, are, that are in your life with someone else. It's a blessing when you begin to share your life with someone else and get to know somebody that way. Now, I've got to point something out here. Because if you're like me, you look and go, well, I don't do too good at the singing part. I'm okay at doing good. Sharing, you don't get to pick. He's saying do all three of these. You don't get to go, well, I'm, I'm pretty good at singing, so that, that covers me. I did number one. And, and I, don't, I, I don't say much at all because I'm kind of shy, so I'm good with that. No, no, it says we're supposed, to, we're supposed to give thanks, all of them, the fruit of our lips, to do good and to share. Now look at verse 17. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive. For they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief. For that would be unprofitable for you. It's a little awkward for me to teach on this verse. I'd kind of like to just skip right over it and let you have someone else come teach on this verse. But the truth is, it's rather clear. We don't 
like the thought of anybody ruling over us. Matter of fact, we hate it. No one's going to tell me what to do. I want things. It's my life. I can do what I want. Not in God's economy. In God's economy, there's an organization. There's people that he's set up, and he's referring to those that rule over you as the leaders in the church. And that phrase here, it's used the second time. And the first time we're told to remember those people in our lives. They've taught you the word of God, consider all the good that's come out of their lives, and to follow their example of faith. Now he's told, now we're told here to, to, what did he say? Obey and be submissive to those who rule over you. Now I know those two words, obey and submissive, people, I don't want to hear any of that. I'm not listening anymore. No, keep your eyes, keep your ears open. This is important. If it wasn't important, it wouldn't be in God's word. He says there needs to be a position, there needs to be a situation where you're told to be submissive to those who rule over you. It doesn't mean that they get to be dictators in your life. But it means when the leaders in the church go before the Lord and they get an answer towards something, they lead in a certain direction, you say, okay, and you trust that God's leading them. It doesn't mean they get to be a dictator and tell you whatever you want to do. It means that you even, in other words, if, if, there's, a, if there's a situation in a church and the church elders or the church deacons or the church board, whatever they call themselves, seek the Lord on something and they say, we've sought the Lord, this is what we believe the Lord's saying, and you go, well, I don't like that. Well, that's not obeying them. That's not, now, I'm not saying if it's unbiblical. There's a difference between unbiblical. I'm saying if, it's, if they come to, with the leaders of the church come together with a decision and that someone tells you something, you have to go, okay. There's, there's, a simple, there's a simple act of submission there. Now, let me also point out that I'm very aware that there are leaders in churches who will take this to extremes. They will command uh, submission and obedience to go too far. If you've been a Christian for a while, and you remember, I think it was probably in the 70s and the 80s, there was a movement called the shepherding movement. Anybody familiar with it? And the idea behind it was that you had to be submissive to your church leaders. So if you wanted to get married, you had to go to the pastor that, you were, that was over you, and you had to ask him for permission to get married. And he would tell you yes or no, and you had to follow that. Or if you wanted to buy a house, that's not what this is teaching. This is not talking about that. It's talking about when the leadership of a church, of a, of, a, of a church or a Bible study or group gets together and they seek the Lord and they make a godly decision. It lines up with scripture. You have to follow it even if you don't agree with it. Now, I know what happens in our culture. What do you do if you don't like what the church is doing? You leave. You go to the church down the street. You find another one that you like. But I can promise you it will be a time, matter of time before you leave that one because they're going to do something to make you mad too. What we need to come to the position and what we need to understand is when you find yourself in a position where I don't really agree with what the church is doing here, I have to ask myself first, is it unbiblical? Are are, are they doing something unbiblical? If the answer to that question is no, then as a part of that church, I have the obligation to come under that authority. That doesn't mean the church can tell you what to do and exactly, you know, you you can't get married, you can buy a house. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about the organization of the church. Pastor Chuck taught on this, and he had it right. I think he, he summed it up beautifully. He said this, a church leader or a leader in the church should teach people to submit to God, not to himself, okay? The church leader should teach people to submit to God, not to himself. Anytime submission is in play, the ultimate authority is always the Lord. It's always the Lord. If me as a pastor, if I teach you to submit your life wholly to God, I never have to worry about you coming under my authority. Because if you're submitted to God, you'll be in line with his word. 
That's the ultimate position. When we all know the women, I don't like that women submit to your husband's thing in the book of Ephesians. Listen, if you will submit, ladies, if you will submit to God, everything else comes naturally. It's, it's just, it just happens. It'll just happen as you submit your life to the Lord. It happens as you're part of a church, you submit to the Lord. It happens. It just, it's just the way he's the authority that you submit to over and above everything and anybody. All right, in verse 18, the author here is not too proud to ask for prayer. He simply says, pray for us. Pray for us, for we are confident that we have a good conscience. In other words, we haven't done anything wrong. We haven't fallen in sin. In all things, desiring to live honorably. But I especially urge you to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. In the Greek there, the word pray It's in the present imperative tense, which means pray for us, but continue to pray for us. But it also implies that they have been praying. In other words, you've been praying for us, keep praying for us. Don't misunderstand, don't, well, I should say it this way, try to understand the power in prayer. Just just try to understand what can be accomplished. He's basically telling them, listen, I want to come see you. I want to spend time with you. Would you pray for that to happen? Now, I've had people ask me over the years, hey, uh, I pray to God. He's sovereign. He knows my heart. So I pray once. Do I need to pray again? Or, or should I just, is that like bothering him? Well, here's a scriptural example. When you look at the Greek, you are to continually pray for this, I, this I thing that I want you to come, I want to spend time with you. Pray the Lord would come, allow me to come to you. Pray for me continually. Keep praying. You've been praying. Keep praying. So you have a scriptural example of, no, you're not bothering God. If this, when it comes to your unsaved relatives, keep praying for them. When it comes to something you're, you want the Lord to do in your life, keep praying for it. Now, if it comes to a new house, you might need to stop. You got, maybe you have your answer. But when it comes to the things in Scripture, the promises of God, don't ever stop praying for them. Keep asking the Lord for them. And don't ever underestimate the power of prayer. Most of you guys, I don't know how many know this, but we have been a church for almost 10 years. Or it's been 10 years now. We've been a church for 10 years. We didn't have a worship leader until last year. But do you know that Aaron is our worship leader? Do you know that before I came to Cumberland to plant this church in 2006, I began praying for the future worship leader of the church? Before he was saved, I was praying for him. Didn't know who he was. Never met him. Do you know that today I pray for the spouses of my children? I don't know who they are, but I'm praying for them. I'm praying the Lord would work in their life. I'm praying the Lord would bring them to salvation. I'm praying, that, you know, I'm praying all kinds of things for them. What about you? Do, you? do you realize the power in prayer in somebody's life? Don't, don't underestimate that. And now as we go into the final section, we're kind of short on time here. The writer pronounces a blessing upon the readers. Just listen as I read it. It's, it's beautiful. Now may the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work. Why? To do his will working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Don't underestimate the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. It has the power to make you complete, perfect in every good work. It empowers you. It cleanses you. It strengthens you to do his will so that you will be pleasing in his sight. Why? So that he he might receive glory from your life. Verse 22, for one final appeal, and I appeal to you, brethren. He says, bear with the work of exhortation. That word bear means to continue to accept it is true. 
bear with this work of exhortation, for I have written to you in few words. 13 chapters is few words in his mind. Can you imagine what he could have wrote? This is the, this is the Cliff Notes. This is the slimmed down version. I've, been, I've written to you in few words. He says, know that our brother Timothy has been set free. He's out of jail. With whom I shall see you if he comes shortly. Greet all those who rule over you and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Grace be with you all. Amen. Obviously, he's writing from Italy, possibly Rome. But there it is again. There's that phrase. Those who rule over you. The third time we've seen it in our study. Initially, we're told in verse 7 to remember those that rule over you. Then in verse 17, we're told to obey those that rule over you. And now in verse 24, we're told to greet those who rule, over, who, who rule over you. And certainly the author is greeting them on a personal greeting, but I think he's also sending another message. The pastor, the leaders of your church, you should always be able to greet them. You should always be on speaking terms with them. There should be never this root of bitterness that says, I don't like what they're doing, I'm not talking to that person. I'm, not, I'm mad at them, I'm, I'm not talking to them. If there is such a root, you realize the damage that it'll cause not only in your life, but also in the church. Because isn't that where a church division will begin in someone's heart who goes, I don't like what he's doing and I'm doing it my own way. God may call you to do something your own way, but there's a right way and a wrong way to do that. God may call you to leave one church and go to another one, but there's a right way and a wrong way to do that. God may call you to do something that you, it's difficult, but there's a right way and a wrong way to leave one and to begin another. If there is a problem in our church, and, and, and you were to have a problem with me, I would hope that you would follow Matthew 18 and come to me one-on-one, -on -one, see if we can reason on this. If we can't, we'll bring someone else in. And I mean, I think that that's the, that's the biblical prescription we have. But this is amazing. He says, remember them, submit to them, and greet them, the leaders of the church, the, the people that are over you. And I understand that in our culture, we don't like people being over us. I understand that's natural. We don't want anybody telling us what to do. But I don't think that a leader in a church is over you to tell you what to do. They're there to guide you. And like the scripture said, they have to give an account. And there's, they're either going to do it with joy or as a burden. You have to, I have to give an account to the ministry that I have here. Every pastor teaching has to give an account to the Lord for the ministry. I have to give an account for you individually is what the scripture is saying there. Am I going to be able to give an account joyfully? Oh, let me tell you what the Lord's doing in their life. Let me tell you how they're working in so-and-so's life or what God's doing. Or is it, well, yeah, here they come. I don't, I don't want to see them today. I heard Pastor Chuck say something that, I, that floored me when I heard it. He said, every church has blessed additions and blessed subtractions. I thought, Chuck, how could you say that? People are going to leave your church over that. Then you're a pastor for a while, and you realize, yeah, there's, there's some truth to that. It's not always bad. It's just sometimes it's time for people to move on and go into other places and do different things. You see, hopefully through our study of the book of Hebrews, you've come to this realization that Christ is supreme. Christ is better. And there are promises that in our life that only come through Christ. We are part of an eternal kingdom that cannot be shaken as a believer in Jesus Christ. But I also have to tell you that if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you don't have those promises. You don't have that hope. The only way that you can have it anytime you want by believing in Jesus Christ and following him, and that's not just simply praying a prayer. That's the beginning of a, of a relationship with Christ. That'll enter you into a race that you now must run for the rest of your life, that you must follow him. You see, I also believe that the church sometimes we... 
We've, we've mistakenly led too many people into what we would call salvation prayers and not followed up with that and continued in a discipleship program where they began to follow. I think you could mislead someone by praying a prayer and say, you're good, you're fine, now go live any way you want. I, I don't know that that's true because only the Lord knows the heart. But a true change, James says, I will show you my faith by my works. I'll show you the, my faith by the change in my life, by the things I'm doing to follow the Lord. So I want to close with this thought. If you don't know Jesus Christ this morning as your Savior, you think, you know what? I want that promise. I want an eternal kingdom. I want that hope. I want, I want that. It's real simple. Just come see me after church today. I'd love to pray with you and introduce him to you. And if you do know Jesus Christ, hopefully this morning you're reminded, hopefully you're encouraged, and hopefully you were challenged in some things that may be happening in your life. And I would encourage you to listen to the Holy Spirit as he does what he does best, as he convicts and leads and guides us in a way that only he can. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. You are so faithful to minister to us, to speak to us, to meet us right where we're at. Lord, as we've concluded this book of Hebrews, this letter to the Hebrews, Lord, I just ask that you would help us take some of these points, take these things that we've learned over these last 13 chapters. Lord, I pray they will have changed our life. I pray that we will have seen things in Christ that we've never saw before. Maybe it's that he's according to the order of Melchizedek. Maybe he's that, our high, maybe he's, that he's our high priest. Lord, I just pray we would get to know you more. Minister to us. Share us, share with us, teach us, grow us. May you fulfill in us the very reason that you created us. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and stand for a closing song.